continuing on. So God gives more grace to the one that responds to grace in every covenant. To one that is given, one will be given more if he uses it, okay? He that does not use it, what light and grace he's been given, even what he has will be taken from him. Uh-huh. So those who show themselves unfaithful, God will take that from them. The truth, the spirit of truth, if people despise it and fight against it, they'll be given lies. The spirit will deceive them. They'll be given over to corruption because they did not want the truth nor obey it. So that's part of the kingdom. What will be taken from them? Even the mercy and grace they were given, when they're in the lake of fire, there won't be nothing but punishment and wrath of God for them rejecting the spirit of holiness and the spirit of grace. Okay, that's the laws of the kingdom. So lies and blindness and deception follow those who reject the truth, who fight against the truth. The Spirit of God, as it says, will not always strive with man. Pharaoh and King Saul got the consequences. They got to a point where God, as he said through Paul, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll harden whom I'll harden. Some idiots often think that means before they were born as if God's whimsical. No, it means if you look at Pharaoh and Saul, God was very patient and long-suffering, and they kept rebelling against him. He did the same to the children of Israel. He did not allow them to go into the land, and most of them, over 20, had to wander for 40 years. They missed it by a day. The scripture says he tested them 10 times. So finally, he had enough. Patience and grace and long-suffering come to an end. When Noah preached 120 years, they didn't listen. And it said, God shut the door. Didn't matter as the rains rose and they could beat on the ark. Oh, we believe now. Noah couldn't have opened the door because God shut the door. He said, grace is over. When a person enters hell, the door of grace is over. God's concern, God's goodwill, God's love does not follow. His hatred of sin and evil, he despises the wicked soul, said he hates the violent soul. That's the permanent position of those who are cast into the lake of fire, a hopeless state. Okay. So verse 6 says, at the proper time, this final complete call about man's redemption, it came during Christ's time. He did it. Uh, he instituted it. The conscience, the law and prophets, they were fulfilled, abolished and fulfilled in Christ. And he instituted the new covenant, okay? The formal ways of God's revelation are made complete in the gospel of Christ and the extension of the apostles. I've had people tell me they only read what Jesus said. They're not interested in the apostles. The apostles had more to say than Jesus, and Jesus said he couldn't tell you certain things, but when the Spirit came, which was going to move through the church, apostles, he said, I'll guide you into all truth. They were limited in the gospel. 
They couldn't accept certain things. God didn't tell them certain things because they were still under part of the law. And John the Baptist was trying to get them ready. But even at the end, when Jesus was crucified and got ready to ascend, and all the 500 witnesses, they asked him, when will you restore the kingdom of Israel? See, they wanted God to still overthrow the Romans. They were zealots. And God had no intentions of doing it. It wasn't a proper time. They didn't know that 40 years later, he was going to destroy Israel, the temple, and every, the whole system was going. That the church would be in the true Christian. It wouldn't be the Jewish nation or the Jewish way of worship or the law. It was going to happen. As he didn't answer them, he just simply said, is it not for you to know the times and the seasons that God has set in his own mind? And once the Spirit came at Pentecost, they never asked him that question again because the Spirit told them these things and they knew that he was going to work through the true Christian. Uh -huh. And it took them a little while to grasp this. And six or eight years, they were still preaching to Jews about Christ. And then God allowed the persecution under Stephen later to drive the Christian away from Jerusalem and Israel, the Jewish Christian, because they were being persecuted. And they spread the gospel as they started going. And eventually, Paul was called to lay the foundation for the Gentile church, because in a hundred years or so, there was not going to be any Jewish Christians. They'd simply be Christians. There would be no Jew or Gentile. He wasn't going to deal with them anymore. But for the 40 years, they still went to the Jew first and gave the gospel. 40, the time of probation. And Paul, when he went into uh, certain Roman cities and he gave the gospel, he went to the Jewish synagogue for three Sabbaths. And then finally, they kept rejecting it, and he shook the dust off his feet and said, you judge yourselves unworthy of the kingdom. He was speaking to all the Jews that rejected Christ's sacrifice, and he was saying, you judge yourself, I'll go to the Gentiles. And then a few years later, after he was put to death, over a million Jews were slaughtered and butchered, and their temple and way of worship and their nation was destroyed. See, that was the punishment. Jesus said, for they did not know the time of Jehovah's visitation. So he fulfilled it. He still showed mercy, but after that time, we don't hear of any special ministry of apostles or leaders going to Jews and making a special case to them. If anybody came to the Lord, they came through Christ. There was neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, free or unfree. He said they were all accepted under the gospel. They lost all of their privileges. They're not chosen and privileged. The chosen royal priesthood are true Christians. Jews that do not believe in Christ are as damned and condemned as much as the Gentiles that don't receive him. Okay? So now we see in verse 7, he changes the thought a little bit here. He's going to talk about himself. For this, for this proper time, this proper dispensation or unfolding of God's plans, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. 
He says, he's sort of giving an oath here. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. He's not. He spoke as a prophet. He spoke by command. He actually superseded the Old Testament prophets and what he was given. And he said, and a teacher of the nations and faith and truth, the Gentile. He preached to the Jews. He was well qualified, but he also was an apostle to the Gentile, and no Jew had ever done that. No Jew had been called to do this, basically. Peter opened the door, but it was Paul that laid the foundation, and by the end of the century, there were far more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians, okay? So he was called, appointed is what it means, ordained, okay? Chosen, set aside for, to preach, that means to proclaim and announce. And then he was an apostle, is a special messenger, a pioneer, a foundation layer, a teacher of the nations. They use the word more Gentile. We know it's the nations, not just the old covenant people, the Jews. So he proclaimed the gospel to both. He got more persecution overall from the Jews that rejected the message. The greatest call for prophets and so forth, up at the top of the list was Moses and Samuel and and John the Baptist was the greatest as far as his ministry. But those in the New Covenant, they were not limited. They had the full spirit indwelling them. So they were greater in their ministry and their service. The least Christian that ministers and whatever calling or form the Lord's called him is greater in ministry than any of those under the old covenant because he has the spirit of Christ indwelling him. They did not. The spirit came on them. He had all the, the new Christian, the Christian Nuka has his sins removed, the effects of it, and is given power. Under the old, they remembered their sins yearly. They still had a consciousness of things they did and were not sure where they stood at times. And therefore, they could not approach God behind the tabernacle. Sin kept them from God. Sin causes a distance between man and God. God is not changed. He'll always be holy. He'll always despise sin. And ultimately, he'll despise the sinner in hell and have no thought for them of kindness. They will experience eternal wrath which means utter contempt and anger. That's what it means. People don't like to talk about that side, none, do they? So they fulfilled in the new covenant, they stand high in their authority and power far greater than those under the old covenant. Their foundation teachings and order were finished. It was completed, abolished, and fulfilled in the new covenant. Christ took care of all of the, the lower covenants, we can call them, the lower dispensation, the working up to his complete process that he had planned to do. And those who were faithful under their covenant are saved. And they were the ones in paradise that Jesus went and proclaimed the victory and what his blood did and what his sacrifice did. They looked forward to that. The Bible says Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. He was given enough. He was a prophet. 
Some of the prophets were given glimpses of what was going to happen, but they weren't given the full picture. So then they understood they had the faith in the Messiah that was going to come, and they followed the dispensation, the covenant they were under. And so he redeemed them and took them. And we look back by faith of what he has done, and we follow him. Okay? And he has completed his reformation. He has completed his salvation work that he wanted to do for mankind. So those who are least in the kingdom of Christ are greater in ministry than any under the old covenant. A called teacher in the new covenant far exceeds knowledge and revelation than Moses did or Abraham, or John the Baptist, or any of the prophets. They got the complete picture. They were shown things. The Bible says that even angels desire to look into. They were taught wisdom through how God deals and laid the foundation of Christianity. The angels didn't know it all, but they figured it out. God showed them things by how he worked. He showed his great grace and his great wrath. His grace and love toward those who receive and his great anger and wrath toward those who don't. They see a fuller picture of God than they ever saw even before sin entered the picture. So Paul's special call as an apostle was special in another way. Uh, He was called to be an apostle to the nations, the Gentiles. Peter and John and the other apostles for six, eight years or so preached only to Jews and converted them. Later they would uh, preach as Paul did, but not to the extent Paul did. All of the apostles stayed in Jerusalem most of the time. They may go out on some missions, but they did not leave. Most of the apostles stayed for 40 years and some that were alive other than uh, Peter and a few other ones, James, uh, they fled. Thomas went into India. Philip went to Ethiopia. They survived it. But until the destruction of the temple and the nation, they stayed and remained in Israel. Their apostleship was there. And that's where they stood most of their ministry. Paul was called uh, differently. He was called in a special way to lay a foundation of Christianity uh, to the nations, to the non-Jews. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. Uh It was not to be a pope, okay? He was given the keys of the kingdom. He was the first to preach the gospel under the Spirit at Pentecost. And many got saved, you know, at Pentecost when the Spirit fell And they all started speaking in tongues. Uh, We'll explain that in a minute. But he gave them the gospel, and several thousand came to the Lord. He was the first to open the door. That was the key, was to open doors to the gospel. Uh And then several years later, he went to the house of uh, Cornelius. The Lord told him to go there. And he had told the Lord, but I have not, I haven't eaten. He wouldn't eat with Gentiles. See, he still didn't get the thing that the Spirit was going to teach him. Jesus said, I have things to tell you that only Spirit. They, they couldn't contemplate them messing with Gentiles. 
That was another thing they learned. But the Lord showed them these sacrifices and said, what God has cleansed, don't you call unclean. So he went and he preached. And Cornelius was the first official, as far as we know. He had 12 people in his household. And when he got the message, he was waiting because the angel said he was going to send someone. And he believed the message and was saved and filled with the Spirit. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. That was the outward sign. And when Peter had to explain to James, remember James was the overall bishop or overseer in Jerusalem. It wasn't Peter. Peter was the foremost speaker and preacher. But administration and other things, he always deferred to James. And so when anything important happened, he sent the report to James. So he was afraid of James a little bit because James was a Jew of a Jew and he was a Christian and he wanted to explain to James why I went and ate with the Gentiles because James and the Jews wouldn't do that. They would not go into the house and eat with them. They just, it was under their covenant, but they were being shown something differently. And Peter's smart. He tells them everything. He said, well, what was I to do? It was like, you have to blame God. You can't blame me. And of course, James and the apostles, the disciples, the elders, they accepted that. They said, God has opened the way. And James was clever along with Peter. He said, now we're not going to put a big burden on them. Tell them to avoid immorality. Don't eat things that are strangled. Don't commit fornication, immoral thing. He gave them about four things. He didn't put them under the law. The Jews, many priests were saved later. And Paul and Peter bragged about it and said, he said, we have many priests who believe and observe the law. He didn't say they were saved by it. They were being witnesses. They understood what it, but they knew their salvation was through Christ Jesus, not keeping the law. The, but they kept ritual and sacrifice. Often the Christians would go and pray in the temple, Jewish Christians, okay? Of course, later they were forbidden. But at Pentecost, when the Spirit fell on the 120, and they went out within the street uh, prophesying, glorifying God, they were speaking wonderful things of him. That's what prophecy means. It's not always, uh, thus saith the Lord. They magnified him. They revealed things. Well, they were speaking in tongues, and they didn't know what they were saying. But there was a purpose for it. There were 18 different languages that they spoke in. It lists them. Well, at the Day of Atonement, Jews came from all over Rome and Roman Empire and places, and they would come to worship. Many of them were proselytes. Many of them were Jews that settled in different parts of the empire. And when they came back, and they heard them on the street speaking in their own language, telling them about Christ. That's why many of them got saved. They understood. But the one speaking didn't know what they were saying. So that was the sign. God's Spirit was moving them to tell the people, the Jews and the other nations, about Christ, that he had come to redeem. Okay, And so we see that. And they went back and took their message back to the nations they came from. So they helped spread the gospel in various places, okay? So Peter was led by the Spirit to first preach the gospel to Gentiles. So he was given the keys of the kingdom, the keys to open the way for the Jew and to open the way for the Gentile. Keys are authority and power. 
There's nothing about popery here. That's a bunch of nonsense that you don't find in Scripture. And another thing, that is the rock, was the message. Peter being the rock, he was joined with the message. The rock was the gospel he's preaching and proclaiming. And he was going to be the first to do it openly. That's what Christ meant. And he said that. And yet, isn't it interesting? John, the apostle, lived almost, uh, they believe, until 95 or 100 AD. He was probably in his 90s, 80s or not, or more. But during that time he lived, the Catholic Church says there were four popes had lived and died. Now, which is a rather a little senseless and stupid if you think about it. He was the foundation. Now, why would there be any popes as long as John the Apostle's alive? He was a part of the foundation. He would supersede any other ministry. He was the last of the apostles. Uh-huh. And God kept him around so he could complete the Bible and the book of Revelation. He outlived Peter and Paul about 30 years or so. And we don't know about the other one, but he was the last. And there were no new doctrines, no new scripture. When the Lord spoke through Ephesus and said, you have tried those who claim to be apostles and found them to be false. There are no foundation apostles. After the early church, after Peter and Paul and the first class, all scripture that was going to be written was written. And anything after that had to conform. So there are no popes and new messages. There are no new Christian religions. They're all demonic, and they are moved on by the devil. So four popes, I studied the history, have died, lived and died, and John's still alive. They could not be. Uh He was the original part of the foundation. He was the original witness of the twelve. And when Judas killed himself, Peter said before the Lord ascended, he said, and he quoted Psalms, he said, he fell by transgression and appoint another to his office. And they appointed a man out of two that had been there from the beginning of Christ, and he had to know the foundation, and he was numbered with them. It was not Paul. A bunch of heretics teach that. There's no such thing. He was born out of time out of place. He was given a different ministry. But he wrote half of the New Testament. But God had his ways. But he was not of the twelve. And that's why he went to Jerusalem 10 or 15 years later to get the approval. He said he wanted them to know what he was preaching and what he was called. And he went up by revelation. He said they didn't add nothing to me. He probably didn't want to go. He probably knew more than they knew. But he said, I would have run in vain because they're the foundation. The 12 apostles and some of the 70 still left over. If they had not approved him, Christianity would not have accepted him. So he went up and the Lord said, you go. For they are the foundation and you're building. You're the master builder on this foundation. Verse 8 Therefore, he changes the subject now. He comes on back to prayer that he started with at the beginning of the chapter. Therefore, I want, I desire. The context is almost I command. He has a right to do this as an apostle. Remember, the apostles were prophets. Apostles were higher 
in authority than prophets of the Old or New Testament, okay? He said, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, okay? So what is he saying here? Paul was called to be an apostle. He, he can give commands, his wants and desires, and he makes it plain, as he did in Corinth, he'll tell you if it's his opinion. But some things he'll say, I'm speaking by command of the Lord. And other times he gives them liberty. He says, this is what I think's best, but you're under no obligation to obey it. I wish all men were single like me, he said. But he knew, even Jesus said, all men cannot receive that. And so he said, how have they gifted? So he was thinking it's better, but not for all. Uh-huh. So he didn't, he said, if you marry, you've not sinned. But he liked them, he'd prefer. So when the Catholic Church put that bondage on them, it was demonic. The scripture teaches to forbid wine and marriage among even the laity is a demonic form of doctrine. It's not from God. God never intended to force this. It was always by choice. And he didn't move people to do that against their desires and their will. It was normal to get married. It was abnormal under the pharisaical system not to be married. You were sort of looked down on unless you were a prophet. So he gave liberty and instruction. And he said, I would that you not marry at this time because of the persecution. Other times he says, I wish all women under 50 to marry and bear children. Isn't that interesting? That was his will, okay? So he resumes his instructions on praying. Praying and requesting is the means to get answers and things from God. God is willing to answer proper prayer. Those of his will, of his character. Uh Those not selfish and coveting. As James said, you have not because you don't ask. So many times Christians could get certain things where they don't bother God, so he don't bother them. They're told you ask and pursue. And we also have an enemy and we have conflict and this all comes into play. Uh Perseverance, instruction. We can find God's will and not make it because we don't pray it through. We don't fight the conflict. We don't endure or persevere. We give up too soon, so God doesn't answer. So people need to learn these things. Uh But he doesn't answer selfish, coveting prayers. James says you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask for your own selfish desires or lust. That is coveting and desires for self-gratification. Needs and moderation are listened to. Uh And we can present things to God if we don't know. Some things are questionable. Some things he allows in moderation to some Christians, and yet he doesn't others. Some Christians, he don't allow certain because it's a besetting sin, or they fall into sin easier. So he says, no, you stay away from this. Other people don't have no problem with it, so he don't care. So he's looking at their overall picture, okay? Pampering oneself and luxury and and self-indulgence, they are not answered by God, okay? A lot of the prosperity faith ministry is nothing but coveting and materialism. 
And Paul said a covetous person is an idolater, and you know no idolater has a place in heaven. So if you preach materialism and prosperity and wealth and health and all that, you're preaching heresy. Uh-huh. They're putting the Old Testament over the new. They will promise certain things under the old. They will promise certain amount of prosperity, certain things. Under the new, what replaced it was tribulation and perfecting and the spiritual growth, not the physical world. And that's why Paul could say, set your mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things. So the preoccupation with things on this earth and pleasures and luxuries is a form of coveting, which is a form of idolatry, okay? We are to learn basically, and you don't find this too often, to be content with what state we're in. That mainly means toward materialism and money. He said contentment with godliness is a great gain. And then he immediately, Paul says, but those who lust after and want to be rich, they fall into many hurtful lusts that drown men in hell. As women have swayed from the faith because of this prosperity doctrine. They're living for this world and pleasures. They're king's kid. And they think they're so arrogance and pride. They're not no servants of the Lord. Who are they fooling? They're not fooling themselves, okay? So most prayer should be for God's will, for the needs and aids of other people, finding and asking God's will in the matters that we are concerned with, what he would have us do in certain matters, get his instruction, his will. And then he says, I want men to pray in every place he's to pray, okay? Jews often were superstitious over the many centuries of location. Uh, Once the tabernacle was established and then the temple, they thought the best place to pray was at the temple at Jerusalem. Later on, as the temple was destroyed and they were scattered among the nations, those who are left in the land, they thought the best place to pray was in the Holy Land. And then when they were scattered further into other nations, they would have little places they would gather and sometimes have little places built like rooms. And they felt that was the best place to pray. They were big on location because of the way the Old Covenant taught. It was more of an outward thing, okay? So they felt if you publicly prayed, you had to pray in one of the... And Christians today are just as foolish. Well, most of them aren't Christians. They think the church is holy, and that's the only God or hero. No, he doesn't. That church is no more holier than a cesspool, if it's in the natural. The only holy place is where two or three Christians gather to pray. And wherever they choose to pray, that's where God is. And when everybody leaves and goes home, that building's no more holy than any building, than any false temple. It's nothing. All things are pure in themselves. Everything in the world is not good or evil. It's how people use it. So when people walk into church, they feel, oh, I must be holy. No, it's the presence of other Christians. It's not the building. It's not the sanctuary. You're foolish, see? 
They fall under, and that's what Paul was against with the Galatians. You're starting to fall under the law and old principles. He said, I'm afraid of you. You observe days and months, you're going back under the old system. You're supposed to be free as a Christian, free to do good. And the natural world don't bind us. So we can use money for good or evil. You can use drugs for good or evil. Everything is subject to how the person uses it. And it's only holy as he uses it. When he ceases to use, it's not holy anymore. Okay, So people need to grow up and see these things. Coveting their materialism and indulgence, like I say, proves that a person is not moving in God. Okay, Things must be in God's will and character. They forget they're bought with a price. They're his servants. They're his bond servants and love slaves. He isn't interested in many things they're interested in. Oh, I've heard people say all the time, and they ask me questions. They ask me questions. Well, don't you think God wants me happy? I hear that all the time. People and some Christians say, oh, you know, God wants me to be happy. Not necessarily true. He wants us to be holy. He's interested in our spiritual being. Being happy is a worldly, earthly thing. Now, joy is a spiritual happiness, but it does not depend on outward things. You can have, as Paul did, great joy and great sorrow. You can have conflict and have joy. You cannot have happiness and have those things. Happiness basic in the world is finding one's life. All things are going my way. I'm getting what I want. I'm doing what I want to do. That's what happiness is. And when Christians are told to take up the cross, whatever happened, daily and follow him, that means they're not going to be happy. It means they're going to have their own will, and they may want this and that, but if they yield to the Spirit, they're going to have to obey his will, and that means they have to die to what they want, and they can't pursue it anymore. They may say, well, I like this, I like that, and the Lord may say, well, that's nice, but I don't want that. You're my servant. You do what I tell you. See? So no, worldly happiness will send you to hell, because it simply means you're living a selfish life. And everything's going your way. You like the song, everything's going my way. Yeah. And what do you think will happen at the end? So the Christian is to take up his cross daily. And when our desires and will is in conflict with what God wants, then we have to give way to him. We must give way and think. And remember, uh, you are bought with a price and you're not your own. You're my bond servant. You have a responsibility to me. You serve me, I don't serve you. That's what he's telling us when our duty, and we must do his will. And then those who don't do his will will not make it into the kingdom, okay? So if one is always happy in the natural world, one will lose his eternal soul, his everlasting soul. Jesus said, he that finds his life will lose it. But he that loses his life for my sake and the kingdom will find it. So we are to pray, like he said, with holy hands. Holy hands, he says. That was a sign often our hands of the direction of our works, what we do, what we accomplish in this world. Our feet were the sign of where we walked and what direction we went in. The priest under the old covenant, his right ear and his right thumb and his right toe was anointed with oil. He was to hear from the Lord. 
He was to do with his hands the work of God, and he was to walk where God led him. That was the symbols of this being a priest called alongside and a special ministry. Well, all Christians are priests before the Lord. We are all capable of being the high priest on earth going in behind the veil. Our main high priest is in heaven and dwells in our heart. But we're capable because we all stand before the Lord in a royal priesthood. Okay? So he said, we are to lift up holy hands. Uh-huh. We forget that. Uh-huh. So if you're going to pray, you better be in a position of being holy and not being in rebellion and willful disobedience because you're not going to be heard. Okay? And you might bring some trouble on yourself. And so what do you say? Lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension, or without these things, okay? Without wrath. There could be no anger or unforgiveness. This means excessive anger. The Bible says be angry and sin not. We can be angry, but he said don't carry it past a day. We can be angry at those who sin and have to be reproved. We can show our displeasure, but it's not to become personal. We're doing it for their righteousness and because God's angry with it. So we be angry and sin not. But here he means a continual personal anger or unforgiveness or a vindictive mind. We can't pray if we are in that form, that mind. If we don't forgive other Christians, their failures and sins against us, God will not forgive us. And that's why many people don't get their prayers. Christians going to prayer answered. Uh-huh. They hold on too much. They're petty. And they're selfish. They don't know scripture. Okay? So we see, again, we have to be in a right spirit to pray. Or we have no business praying. We forgive as we are forgiven. We will continue on this in our next lesson. Let's stop here. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Give us practical application of your word. In Christ's name, amen.